Yancey did mention uh, this morning that we are starting a, a new series of lessons that we're really going to be looking at uh, a list of sins. We're going to look at some things like envy, greed, laziness, lust, anger, pride, uh, dishonesty, slander, or gossip. Uh, but we're really going to look at it through the lens of the, that, the reality that this can lead to disaster, to spiritual disaster for us if we don't turn from those things. And if we stay on the road to sin, then obviously that's a path that leads a place that we don't want to go. So we're going to look at that, and we're really going to start with kind of an overview by looking at the idea of flirting with sin. And what does that really mean? Well, we'll start by looking at a definition. So what do we mean by flirting? And what's, so most of us have some kind of an understanding of flirting, but one definition of flirting is that it is insinuating a desire for a relationship or to, to have a thing without serious intention. So uh, we, we recognize that uh, a little bit on the edge and we probably shouldn't do that or we shouldn't have that, but yet it's kind of interesting and we want to see if we, how close we can get to the fire. Uh, Kyle and I were talking before service and he mentioned the phrase, playing with fire. And that's really, and at some point, you know, the, the next phrase that comes to our mind is, at some point, you're going to get burned. There's a recognition of that, that that's going to happen. You, you think about, uh, you know, a, a familiar story of a little boy that he got up and they were getting ready to go to church and the mom dressed the little boy in his Sunday best and he looked really nice and he was clean and ready to go. And now the mom has to go back to her bedroom and get herself ready. And before she leaves him, she leaves him the instruction, now don't go outside and don't get your clothes dirty. But as he begins, he's got, you know, 30, 45 minutes there. As he begins to look out his front door, he sees across the street a bunch of his friends out there, and it rained the night before, and there's kind of a, a muddy place there in the yard in his field, and he and and so these kids were out there playing in that. Boy, that looked interesting, that little boy. And so he watched them for a while there. He knew his mother didn't want him to get dirty, so he stayed inside uh, for a good bit. But you know, it just was it wasn't getting it for him. And so finally, we all know what's going to happen is he begins to walk out there and at first he stays a great distance from it. He's still not going to get dirty, but he's standing in his yard. He's looking across the street and he sees all this fun and they begin to call for him and beckon him to come play with them. And so he still knows he's not supposed to do that. He gets over there a little bit closer thinking, well, I can at least talk to him. So he gets over there close to the mud hole and he's talking to him. And it's not very long before some mud gets slung up and hits, on, hits his shirt and now it's all over him and so we know where he ends up. He ends up in the puddle of mud, exactly. Uh, but it didn't start there. He didn't get up with the idea that he would go jump in that puddle of mud. But it started the idea that I'm just going to play with this idea because it's really pretty enticing to do. There's a story in Israel um, in Isaiah chapter 3 God is, is rebuking Israel and he is, through the prophet Isaiah, he's telling them of some curses that are going to come their way. And in the midst of that, in verse 16, he says, The Lord said, 
The women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips, with ornaments jingling their ankles. And he goes on to say, Therefore the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. In that day the Lord will snatch away their finery. And I will tell you that I cut it off, but he goes on and on and on with the cursing. So the idea is that it starts out with something that seems very innocent. I want to make myself look attractive, and so I'm flirting with these men as I go, and I'm with my eyes. I'm not even saying anything, but I'm flirting with my eyes. And I'm, and I'm, I'm draw, doing things that will draw, my, draw attention from other people to me. And God was not pleased with that. And so he, he, um, he had a curse that was going to uh, come to these people because of that. So you think about just danger itself. You know, what is it about that? You look at that, and so most of us, at least at some level, think, wonder what's behind that tape. What do they not want me to see? Because if, they're, if they've got it sectioned off, it's got to be pretty good. Maybe I can get in there and get a look at it and see what it is. So what is it about danger, or what is it about something that is forbidden that entices us to want it? Seems to be human nature. Why is, it, why is flirting with sin so alluring? Well, first the thing is we've kind of alluded to it is that there's the thrill of danger. You know our adrenaline system, just the way it's set up, God designed us and he put adrenaline in us so that in a situation of danger that we're, we have a heightened awareness. We have a heightened ability to respond to that crisis. That's a survival mechanism. He's designed us that way. But yet in modern culture, when there's not as much need for that, I mean, typically we don't go through life day in and day out fighting for our life each and every day. And so because of that, we're almost drawn to experiences that will cause this rush of adrenaline. You know, you've heard the term adrenaline junkie, that someone who lives for the thrill and they're willing to take all kinds of risk and do outland, outlandish things to get that thrill that you get from an adre adrenaline rush. Um, you know, I guess for years I was a little bit guilty of that. I, as a, as a basketball coach for a lot of years, you're coaching these games, and I will tell you, there's a, there is a rush of adrenaline when you're in those games, and especially a close game that comes down the wire. Um, as a young man, that was especially attractive to me, and I think as I grew older, maybe a little bit less so. Uh, but adrenaline is a big part of that. And, you know, so you see things, people engage in activities like gambling, they engage in high-risk behaviors, seeking that, that rush or that thrill. You know, Satan knows us. He knows you may not be self-aware, but Satan is aware of what entices you. And he's aware of what entices me, too. And so Paul says this to the Corinthians. He says, for Satan... Uh, himself transforms himself as an angel of light, meaning he looks, it looks innocent. It looks like something that's good, 
but the reality is something much different. He says, therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose ends will be according to their works. It's going to look good. It's going to look appealing. But yet, if you really analyze it, it's taking you in a direction that's going to be far, far from your God and what he would have you to do. Another thing that we have a problem with is overconfidence. You know, so if you think about the idea of flirting with sin, we have this overconfidence that we can manage it. I know what I'm doing here. I can control it. I can, I can look without taking the leap. I can, I can watch uh, these shows that may have some crude language without it, without it affecting my language. Uh, I've, I've told this story before and I'll tell it again. Uh, years ago I began to read uh, books on the mafia. And I read several of these books and in some of those books there's quite a bit of language that they use. And, uh, but more so about just the things they were doing. And you know, you just begin to think like that if you read enough of that stuff. Now I never whacked anybody. <laughs> but but you start, the more you take that stuff in, the more you're going to be influenced by those things. You can't help but be. But that there's an overconfidence in ourselves that we think that we've got it under control, that we can, we can make good decisions and we'll not be swayed by that. You know, the Apostle Paul addresses this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the last verses there. He's talking about his own salvation, and he says that, you know, he says, even I have to keep myself under subjective, subjection. He had to discipline himself because even after he preached to others, he himself could be a castaway. He could lose his salvation, even a chosen minister of the gospel, if he didn't keep himself under, um, under check. In, ver in chapter 10, he begins to talk about Israel and their experience and all that God did for them. And yet it says that with many of these, God was not well pleased. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so at the end of that passage, he says, <coughs> excuse me, he says, Therefore let him who thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. I translate that as don't be overconfident. Don't be so sure. Pay attention to your salvation. Take this seriously. This instruction I'm providing, I'm not giving it just just to give it. I want you to pay attention to it. Take it seriously because you can be lost just like Israel was lost. So there was an experiment some time ago that they took a group of people and there was this room that they had baked these chocolate chip cookies in and they, well, the aroma was wonderful. And they took these people and they brought them into this room and then they brought in the chocolate chip cookies. So you can imagine they had the smell they had the sight, and there was about 67 of them in this group, and, and most of the, many of them they told, don't eat the cookies, we've got another snack for you. Now there were some people in the room that they said go ahead and eat the cookies, because that was their control group. So they brought in, as a substitute for the other people, <laughs> radishes. Yeehaw! I'm sure they were quite excited about that. So apparently, according to at least one report that I read, that uh, those people that were asked to eat the radishes 
weren't so happy about it, but they complied. And so after that, they were asked to perform a series of puzzles. And the experience was this, that the group that was required to refrain from the cookies tried fewer puzzles, and they gave up quicker. So the implication is it takes a lot of energy to resist temptation. Now, as Christians, we know that when temptation comes upon us, we should resist it. But we should understand also that the more we flirt with temptation, we're inviting it. We're inviting an environment in which it's going to be more likely that we face more and more of this. Then we're creating an environment that we're, that we're probably at some point going to break down and fail. Every week, we have a table right over here that's full of desserts. And I walk by that table, and I try not to look too close. I actually, I give it a quick glance to see if there's any fruit there, and then I look away. Because I will tell you that if I look very long, and I pay attention very long, you know what? I will convince myself that I can eat that, and it'll be okay. And, and it probably will be. But it, it could be a path to continuing that behavior, and that might not be okay. So again, we tend to overestimate our ability to, to deal with, with temptation. And we, we forget that, that dealing with temptation takes a lot of energy. And if you're continually put yourself in situations to deal with that, it's going to be very, very challenging. So why is flirting with sin so dangerous? Well, the first thing I would say is that flirting with sin is really the first step to an obsession. This passage is found in James 1. I don't want to go too much into this because it stepped on somebody else's uh, lesson, but the idea here is it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So what flirting does, when you flirt with sin, it's like fertilizing and plowing the ground on which sin can grow. Now you may not be planting the seed, but you're making it more likely that when that seed comes there, it's going to germinate and it's going to lead to, to a crop. Flirting does that. It's kind of like this, is that um, I call this, this premise feeding the beast. So you start with this little cute fella here that I'm not sure if it's a rat or what, but uh, it's, it seems pretty harmless at this point. I've got control over this thing. And it's not going to hurt. I'll just feed it a little bit. And you feed it a little bit more. And, you, and Of course, if we're talking about an animal, it's not a big deal. But if it's sin, if that, if that little animal represents sin, at this point you can handle it. But if you keep feeding that beast, you know what? It turns into this. <laughs> it turns into something and now it's controlling you. You're not controlling it anymore. And it's not a 
one day you wake up and it looks like that. It's over time. And the more you feed that beast, at some point you get to a, to a situation where either you can't, control, you can't stop it or it's going to be incredibly painful for you to stop it. It's going to be harder and harder. So why feed the little guy in the first place? So just as a reality check, just so that we're, we just say, well, why is that a big deal? I, I, I'm under grace, and, and no matter what I do, God's going to save me. Let's be reminded of something that Paul told the Romans. He says here that whoever you obey, that's who slaves you are. So if you obey Christ, you're Christ's servants. You're his slave. If you obey sin, you, you, you're sin's slave. You're, you're obedient to, to that. And they lead to two very different places. And I want us to get the idea that heaven and hell is not something that's set up by mommy and daddy to convince us to do good. And it's just some myth and, and it's not really real. There is a reality that on some day that when this world ends that every soul will be judged and they will go to one of these two places. Now to us, it seems like there ought to be some gray area. You know, like, well, I wasn't great, but I wasn't terrible. Maybe there's a middle of ground. There's not. Either we serve the Lord or we don't. And if we don't, there's a place awaiting for us that's going to be miserable, beyond miserable, and there's going to be no end to that misery. That is real. And I want us to get that idea that it's real. So safeguards from sin, how can we protect ourselves? Well, the first thing I would say is you need a moral code. You know, there's lots of moral codes. Christians have a moral code. I just put an example up there of love thy neighbor as thyself. That's part of the Christian moral code. People that don't have a strong moral code can be swayed. When you flirt with sin, in essence, you're really saying that your moral code is somewhat negotiable and that the moral code can be adjusted based on the situation. And so if we're like that, if we're, if we're so flexible that we, we're just going to do what's right, what we feel is right in that situation, and we really don't have a moral code in which a, a set of values that we base our behavior on. So number one, we have to have a strong moral code. Um, I, um, years ago, I coached a group of boys that uh, their dad was really engaged with them and, and they went, each of these boys went off to college in Georgia. And the dad who really, he was a hands-on dad, he spent a lot of time trying to indoctrinate his kids with a moral code, but one of the things that he would do is that each boy, as they drove out to college, he drove with them. He drove them out there, and as he did, he would talk through different situations that, well, if you get in this situation, then how, do, how are you going to handle that? So he took it from a conceptual level as this is what we believe to a very specific application of those principles. And it was about a 13 or 14 hour drive 
and he's pretty well hitting them all the way with this idea of this is what we believe and this is how you handle these situations. In essence, he's helping them make some pre-decisions. You're making decisions before you're faced with a situation. And so you're much more likely to make it in a way that's, that's successful because if you get in the moment, you might be able to talk yourself into that dessert over here on the table or whatever it is. Um, and he knew that. And so he spent a lot of time building that moral code in his kids. Another thing is we have to be self-aware. We have to recognize where we're vulnerable. You know, James says that uh, we're to look into the perfect law of liberty, and if we, if we look at those things, we continue to look at it, and we continue in them, then, then things will go well for us. Uh, but if we don't, if we, we're like a man that looks in a mirror and then walks off and forgets what manner of man he is, so we need to be constantly looking into that uh, into that spiritual mirror to see what we're looking like in light of the gospel, in light of what we're told to do, and make corrections early in the game before that beast gets too large to manage. And then we've got to have a sense for this doesn't feel right. You know, you ever get in a situation in life where you go into a deal and you, uh, it just, you don't really know that it's wrong? just doesn't feel right. That's conscience. And if your conscience has been well trained, as the example here in Hebrews 5, he says, but solid food belongs to those who are full of age, that is, those who by the reason of use of their senses exercise to discern both good and evil. So this is the use of senses to program your conscience where you look at something and you know you might not be able to explain it yet as to why it's wrong but you sense it's wrong and you need to you need to pay attention to your conscience and you need to program your conscience to where it will be an effective early warning system for you the next thing is you need to make time for God I've got a prayer room here uh, but however you do that whether it's uh, in prayer in studying God's Word, you have to make a place for God in your life. He can't be your Lord and Master if you don't ever think about Him. If you don't ever pray to Him, if you don't ever read His instructions for you, then He's not going to be driving uh, the decisions that you make, and you're going to be tempted to flirt with sin. So, And then this passage, he says, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, but in not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. You know what that means? Don't make any room. Don't give it any space. That's the idea of don't flirt with it. You're not making any room. I found this picture on the internet. It says, fill your mind with God's word and you will have no room for Satan's lies. Don't leave room in your life where Satan can come in and put his foot in the door and get a toehold and eventually lead to that beast that takes you over and controls you. I found this on the internet, so it must be true. Uh, But actually, I did like this, and I think it rings true to me. He says, flirting, and this this is written from the context of a man to a woman or a woman to a man. He says, flirting may feel fun in the moment, 
But it produces a false intimacy that leaves a person feeling empty when there's no real relationship behind the flirtation. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think there's a lot of truth to that when it applies to sin. That sin, the flesh, is a, a powerful and demanding taskmaster, master, meaning that no matter what you do, you look at sin and you partake of it and you think that'll, that'll make you happy. Did it? Usually it leaves you wanting more. And so you, you go for more and you find out that that wasn't enough either, so you go for more. Sin can never satisfy our flesh. And, and so it, it's, it's an allure, it's a temptation, but it doesn't really meet the need. So let's, let's think about flirting. It's only flirting with sin. It's not really sin itself. Well, let's consider that. Let's think about a man and a woman. So a man and a woman, a guy's got a wife, a wife's got a husband. So guys, how would you feel about your wife flirting with another man? You love this woman and she's flirting with another man. Are you okay with that? Ladies, would you be all right with your husband, who you're sacrificing for and doing things for, flirting with another lady, would that be okay? Well, I think the answer is obviously no. Paul puts this comparison where he equates the relationship of a husband to a wife to Christ and his church. So if a husband would be angry at a wife flirting. Think about what Christ is when, when we, as his bride, if we flirt with sin, we're doing the very same thing. Jesus kind of alluded to that in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you've heard, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say unto you that whosoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So when we look at sin and we decide we want that, or we're going to flirt with that, or we're going to entertain the idea of playing with that, that's very much what Jesus is preaching against here. He's speaking of it, of course, of a man and a woman, but the idea can be carried out to pretty much any sin you want, to, you want to take. Flirting itself is a sin. It is making provision for the flesh. And so this morning I will just close uh, by asking you to consider where are you tempted? Where are you tempted and, and do you recognize and are you able to turn away from those things before they lead you down a path Know that we're overconfident. Know that we, we have too much confidence in our own ability to, to make right decisions uh, once we're down the path of sin. We've got to, we've got to identify that. We've got to not flirt with those things. 
Uh, as, as there's additional lessons, you're going to hopefully be able to take this lesson and it's going to serve as kind of a, a template to look at these other specific subjects and help us to really examine ourselves and grow and be better servants for the Lord and clean up our lives and, and understand also that sin does not make you happy. Sin takes you down a path of misery. It's like that beast. Yeah, it looked real cute at the first, but at the end, it's, it's a horrible beast that you're not controlling, it's controlling you. So let's be a people that, that takes care of that, that does what they need to do. Uh, this morning, if the church can help you in any way, we have a song of invitation that's been, that's been selected. We're going to stand and sing that song. If we can help you, we would ask you to come and sit on the front pew as we stand and sing together.